Welcome to Bollywood and Books. I'm your host, Lovelace Cook. You'll enjoy part one of a two-part episode featuring my conversation with New York Times bestselling author Akka Joshi. In episode one, Akka talks about her childhood in India and her path to publishing her debut novel, The Henna Artist. It's a New York Times bestseller and a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. And it's also an L.A. Times bestseller and a USA Today bestseller. The Henna Artist is now a Netflix project. We talk about that in part two of the conversation. Alka discusses the reasons she launched an ad agency and hired women to help her implement projects for clients. It was all about empowering women. She created the character Lakshmi to give her mother the chance she never had to lead her life in the independent way in which Alka has been able to lead her own life. She wanted her mother to experience that independence. Alka talks about her fascinating journey to publication. She advises writers that they need passion, patience, and perseverance, stick-to-itiveness to get good at what they're doing. Make sure to tune in next week for part two of the episode with New York Times bestselling author Alka Joshi. We'll talk about the Netflix series in the works for the henna artist and book two in the trilogy, The Secret Keeper of Jaipur. And we'll discuss the third novel that Alka will publish in 2023. When I told my editor that I was going to be very frank with people about how long it took me to write the debut novel, The Henna Artist, she said, no, 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 don't tell people that because it might discourage future writers. I said, I don't think so. I think quite the contrary. I think people need to know that writing your novel and learning how to write a novel is not like the movies or television portrays it. They show somebody sitting down at a typewriter or a laptop and they're banging out all of the words with no editing involved. And all of a sudden, the pages are flying off the press. And then the next thing you know, they're at a book signing at a bookstore. That's not the way the world works. Most of the writers I have spoken to It took them four years, five years, 10 years to write their first novel. And before that, they may have had a couple of novels under their belt that never made it to publishing. It just takes time to get good at writing just the way it does to get good at anything, whether you're playing a piano or becoming an actress or becoming an engineer. It just takes time. Join me on an adventure. A literary romp through India. Meet me at the corner of patchouli and chai, where books, cinema, and conversation collide. I'm Lovelace Cook. I'll be your tour guide. Welcome to Bollywood and Books. Reading your novels, I was so glad that I ordered both at the same time. There is nothing greater than losing sleep, not being able to stop reading the novel and the tension, the pacing. I think it's great to find a novel and an author whose writing makes you want to turn page after page. I don't want to stop. I know it's late. I hear you. I, I feel the same way when I run across a book like that, and I just don't want to put it down. It's so fun. <laughs> I've heard you talk about growing up in Jodhpur. It, I was born in Jodhpur, but I also lived in Rajasthan in three other cities, Jaipur, Banswara, and Bikaner. And then we lived one year up in the state of Punjab in a place called Chandigarh. So I actually, before the age of nine, had lived in five different cities. 
What are your favorite memories of growing up? A little girl. Here are the things I do remember. I remember when my mother would have all of the little clay lamps lit all around the windows and the entrance of the house and up and down the steps for Diwali because Diwali is the festival of lights. And I remember my mother loved anything festival. And so every festival she would celebrate with whatever the customary tradition was that we had to celebrate it with. I also remember that I had uh, best friends when we were in Bikaner, I had best friends who had this huge dollhouse and uh, they were two sisters and they had a dollhouse complete with all the tiny little furniture inside and all the little rooms, the drawing room, the bedroom, you know, the the library. And I loved playing with that dollhouse. I loved imagining myself in all of those rooms. And it probably fed my imagination at a very early age. Like what were people doing in those rooms? Where were they sitting? What were, whom were they talking to? So I remember that. I remember a time when, oh, I also remember in our We went to a school where we had English all day long. Our instruction was all in English. And these were Christian nuns who ran the school. And these in India are called convent schools. And ours was called St. Sophia. Every morning, we had to line up in rows, according to our class, and we had to say the Lord's Prayer. Now, I am Hindu. I'm not Christian. And I remember reciting the Lord's Prayer. I can still to this day recite the Lord's Prayer. And yet, I think as a small child, I had no idea what I was saying. All I knew was that I had to say these words in front of the class every morning, in front of the assembly every morning. And then from the courtyard, we would then go into our various classrooms. So I remember that. I remember being taken to school sometimes by our nanny on uh, his bike. So like I might ride on the front handlebars, my brothers were behind, and he would cycle us to school. It was only like a mile away or something, you know, so that was part of what we did. I remember the food. I remember everything about, you know, preparation of the food, the people eating, I remember my mother, you know, telling the cook what to make for dinner that night. We also had a Jeep and my father had a driver. So the, you know, the, the, every time the Jeep would come in, my mother would say, okay, it's time for dinner because she could not eat until my father actually arrived home, whether it was late at night or, you know, early in the evening. So, you know, we all would eat all at the same time. <laughs> so I just remember, you know, things like that. There was a swing in our house and all of us love to ride that swing. You know, we would do that thing where you stand on the swing and you put your hands on either side of the rope. This was a swing with rope handles on it. And then, you know, you just want to swing yourself back and forth as high as possible. So we used to do that. You know, there was a cobra, I remember one day that came up, we we lived on a very large acreage, and behind us was a creek. And, and there was a cobra that came up one time through, through something, I don't know, back behind in that area. And my father had to go get one of our neighbors up the street. And they had a gun because they were hunters. So that neighbor came and he shot the cobra. I remember that. That was, you know, like a major event in our kid's life. 
I know this creative spirit and imagination just continued to develop. You brought the creativity and imagination into developing an ad agency, but what courage, what inspired you to create an ad agency? Oh, now that had a lot to do with the the patriarchy and sexism. (laughs) So what happened is that I always thought I would be an artist. And it turned out, I don't really think I had all the skill necessary and the passion necessary to become a fully realized artist. I then thought, well, what else can I do that is artistic and allows me to use my creativity and all these ideas that I always have going in and out of my brain, but also then allows me to use sort of the verbal ability that I have. And that turned out to be advertising. I had been taking some classes, night classes in advertising while I was, you know, supporting myself. And I thought, oh, okay, so maybe I could do this. And I started developing a portfolio. Then finally, I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to work in an ad agency, but I want to work in a large ad agency with a lot of large clients and the ability to do TV commercials, because that will allow me to paint pretty pictures of how the ad should go. And then somebody else will write the words. So I thought I'm going to be in a creative department in an ad agency. Well, when I went to interview, you know, McCann Erickson was the first one to offer me a job, but they said, we'll offer you a job as a copywriter. I said, but I want to be an art director. And they said, well, the thing is, you're a very good writer. (laughs) You know, you wrote all of the headlines and the body copy in your portfolio. And we think that you could, you know, become one of our junior copywriters. So that's what we'd like to hire you for. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to take this job and I'm going to show them I could be a better art director than a writer. But one month into the job, and I knew that I was meant to be a writer instead of an art director because writers had so much more free range over ideas, over all of the radio spots are all written by writers. All the dialogue is written by writers. You know, the way two people will interact with one another, the music, the you know sound effects, all of those things come from writers. So I thought, oh, I, I, I have much more power as a writer. I'm going to be, <laughs> I'm going to just do the writing. After about eight years into the ad agency, I realized that, you know, I was being paid less than the boys who were also copywriters. I was not given the opportunity to work on a lot of the juicy projects. And I kept asking my boss. And then I went to personnel. And, you know, I went up the chain as far as I could to say, hey, I deserve more recognition and more money for what I am doing and for the fact that my ad campaigns are liked by the client and the client is giving you more projects as a result of what I'm working on. And nobody was listening to me. So I thought, you know what? I think the only way that I can now succeed in this environment and stop with the sexism and the butt pinching and the you know, the sort of sexual innuendos that are thrown out all the time is to start my own agency. That's how I started my own agency. So I quit my job and I gave myself about a six month lag in which to build up the business, but it only took me two months. I just pitched to everybody I knew and their friends and their mothers. I just pitched to everybody. And before long, I was making a hundred times what I was making as a you know, somebody working in an, in a, in an agency for somebody else. So I really, I loved 
having my own business, because it also meant that I got to hire the people I wanted to work with. And I wanted to work with women because women do not often get a chance. And they certainly didn't in the 80s in ad agencies. And so I thought, you know, I'm only going to hire women. So I hired women to do the copywriting, to do the event planning, to do the marketing, you know, whatever it is I was doing, I needed other people to help me out with these large projects. And it was fun working with women because they work so hard. They work so much harder than any of the men I had ever worked with. And they delivered on time and they were reasonable to work with. And I paid them as much as I could afford to pay them because I thought, you know, in an ad agency, they're going to get paid so much less. So I'm going to pay them what I think I deserve to be paid when I work for ad agencies. I know that background, the writing background, and I have met with all of the issues myself in New York and LA, so I I totally get it. I love the fact that you were empowering women and giving women their due. Yeah. If you're going to, you know, talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. And, you know, it's no good for me to think women deserve more agency in their lives without doing something about it. And I think that that's what began me on my writing career, too, on my journey. Because I wanted my mother to have the kind of life that I have had, where I've had a chance to be independent in my thought process, independent in the way I lead my life, independent in my choice of husband, independent in my choice of, you know, career. I've changed career four times now. Being being a full-time author is now my fourth major career. I wanted my mother to experience that, but I can't change my mother's life. I can't go back, you know, 30, 40 years for her. So I could do that, though, in fiction. And that's why I invented this character of Lakshmi to give my mother that kind of life. My parents, you know, are from the middle class. And so they did have opportunities to meet with Maharani's and Maharajas in India. And my father was an engineer. So he was developing India post-independence. He was doing, he was designing the roads and the dams and the bridges and the foundations for new buildings. And so they were all part of the process that I write about in the Henna Artists, where in 1955 India, when we first meet up with Lakshmi, she is on the cusp of independence and, you know, finding her own footing in life, the way that India is finding its footing in the global uh, sphere after 200 years of colonization. So I, I wanted those parallels there as well. I wondered, I wonder if my mother would have thrived in this environment if she had been given a chance, if she had had the impetus to leave uh, a marriage and then to forge a life of her own, what would she have done? I loved answering some of these questions and imagining this alternate life for my mom. The Hannah artist is knock your socks off. Incredible. I love the color, the descriptions of India, all of the senses are evoked through your writing and descriptions. I was thinking engineering, ah, dad engineering, Malik. Yes, exactly. And like Malik, my father never had a birth certificate. I think way back then in India in the 40s, uh, 50s and 60s, nobody had birth certificates. And my father is one of 13 children. He was born in a village. When he immigrated to the United States, 
and had us all immigrate to the United States with him because we were already a young family at the time. He had to actually go around and get birth certificates for us made up (laughs) so that we could get those passports and visas. But yeah, like Malik, I think my dad has always been very enterprising and, you know, just uh, a go-getter. And I think that's what took him from doing very well in school in India to then getting his first master's in India and then getting his second master's in the United States and then getting his doctoral degree. I, you know, my hat is off to my dad because he has this photographic memory. So he remembers very clearly dates and places and names. If I were to write the henna artist without him, I don't know that I could have done that. I think my dad was such a big part of the history that went into the henna artist. Both my parents were alive before independence, during independence, and after independence. So I needed their input in order to understand what life was like in 1955 with these people who had been born in the 30s, 40s, and now we're living in the 50s. Thank you for explaining that background. I saw a photo of your mom, a beautiful, beautiful lady. And I see see you in her. You're so fortunate to have the resources with your dad's photographic memory for details to be able to ask questions to. Lakshmi's journey is incredible. You gave us a heroine who moves out of a spot that is constraining in terms of an abusive marriage, but she manages to use that to build her own, as you said, agency. I would love to hear your thoughts on on the development of the character. You know, I think that as I was developing this character, I made her look just like my mother because I was developing this alternate life for her. And I imbued her with a lot of my mother's characteristics, which are patience and the ability to get along with a lot of different kinds of people. And also this grace that I think my mother had. She was so elegant. And yet there are parts of Lakshmi that are also me in the way that she navigates her business life, the way that I have also had to navigate my business life so that people wouldn't take advantage of me, so that people would respect what I had to offer and pay me what I needed to be paid. And this is what Lakshmi is also fighting for. You know, in some way, it's kind of interesting to develop a character that has parts of you in it and parts of other people in it, because it's sort of like I'm pulling the best of my mother and me (laughs) into the character of Lakshmi. You know, I wish I were as, I think, as easy to get along with as Lakshmi is. You know, she, she holds herself back so much from saying exactly what she thinks. She's very diplomatic in the way that she handles the the husbands of the women whom she services. I don't have that, you know, personally, I am not that patient or that diplomatic. And I love the idea of creating a character who is sort of my alter ego as well. <laughs> Your journey to publication of The Hen Artist is, is a fascinating story in and of itself. Yeah, I think that... You know, when I told my editor that I was going to be very frank with people about how long it took me to write the debut novel, The Henna Artist, she said, no, 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 don't tell people that because it might discourage future writers. 
I said, I don't think so. I think quite the contrary. I think people need to know that writing your novel and learning how to write a novel is not like the movies or television portrays it. They show somebody sitting down at a typewriter or a laptop and they're banging out all of the words with no editing involved. And all of a sudden, the pages are flying off the press. And then the next thing you know, they're at a book signing at a bookstore. That's not the way the world works. Most of the writers I have spoken to, it took them four years, five years, 10 years to write their first novel. And before that, they may have had a couple of novels under their belt that never made it to publishing. So you see, it just takes time to get good at writing just the way it does to get good at anything, whether you're playing a piano or becoming an actress or becoming an engineer, you know, it just takes time. So for me, that journey was a 10-year process, and it also was a 30-draft process. And along the way, I had so many people helping. I had my thesis advisors in my MFA program helping me and helping shape the novel in different ways. I had my agent who was recommended to me by my thesis advisor. In fact, my advisor is the one who sent my draft off to her agent. And that's the agent then who called me and said, I'd like to be your agent. I didn't even go out and search for an agent. So when people ask me, how do I find an agent? I actually don't know the answer to that question. My agent had a lot to do with trimming the novel down. I think initially when I sent it to her, it was something like 440 pages. And she had me cut out 150 pages of that. She was really instrumental in helping shape it. And then I had a couple of developmental editors I hired to help me sort of figure out how do you make a novel that is a good novel a really really a best-selling novel. And so they helped me out with that. And then I made some of their changes. And then finally, I had my editor at the publishing house. Once HarperCollins bought the book, then I had Kathy Sagan, my editor. And then she went through and told me about some changes she would like me to make to make it even better. So I had so many people helping me along the way. And I, I have to say along the way, I also quit several times because I got so frustrated with how long the process is and how I couldn't just learn it right away. And I remember I told you, Lovelace, I have very little patience. I just wanted it to be done. And in advertising, you have very short deadlines. You need to get your work done. You need to deliver it on time. You need to make sure that it airs, you know, at the time that the client is putting out their product or service. And so you don't have a lot of time to edit, edit, edit. But in a novel that you're writing from your head where nobody has asked for it, there's no particular deadline, you have time to edit, edit, edit. And everybody's going to ask you to do that. If they're doing their job, they're not going to let that book out of the door until it can become a bestseller. I've heard you on several interviews talk about the three Ps. Yes. My three Ps, I think, that I have developed over time are passion. You have to know that you are passionate about the subject you're writing about. Because if you lose your passion for the subject, then it will come through to the reader. And if you're not as interested in your own novel that you're writing, the reader won't be as interested in it either. So it has to be passion for the subject matter that you're writing about. And for me, since I'm writing this alternate life for my mother, it was very important for me to, to realize it, that and then to keep going with it until I could get to the end. 
Number two is patience, right? You have to have patience with yourself. You have to always remind yourself, look, I just started doing this writing business. I am not going to be perfect at it the first go around or the second go around. And I need to take the help of whomever out there is able to help me. So, you know, whoever is telling me to make the book better, I need to listen. I may not incorporate all of their suggestions, but I need to listen. And then the third P is perseverance. So no matter how long it takes, you need to stay with it. I think stick-to-itiveness is something that we might have lost in our culture. I think a lot of times we forget that stick-to-itiveness is the only way that people become really good at what they're doing. You know, the more we can persevere and say, okay, well, maybe that last draft I did was not acceptable for everybody. Maybe the next draft will be. And you just have to keep going with it. So I think those are my three P's, passion, patience, and perseverance. The other thing that you did through all those years with the agency was practice. And you become a better and better writer, especially when you're delivering for a business. It's a different world, but you're delivering and helping someone make money with a product or a service, whatever it is. But you have that foundation, really solid foundation. You've talked about your husband and the, his support and encouragement too. That has been the whole reason that I started writing. He kept saying, honey, I know that you write advertising copy, but I think that you could actually write long form no- novels. And I said, no, you know, for a long time, I said, well, that's very sweet of you that you think so. He said, no, it's not sweet of me. I think that you are a very good storyteller. When you tell your stories, when you make up stories about people that when we're standing in line at the supermarket, you know, you're entertaining. And I think that you have an imagination that just knows no bounds. So I think you should try this. You should take an evening class or two. And then when the recession came in 2008 and my agency work slowed down, it was the perfect time for me to experiment and take some classes. And I did. And my teachers were so helpful and encouraging. And I thought, oh, well, maybe maybe my husband's been right all these years. Maybe I should take up novel writing. That's when I enrolled in the MFA program to give myself a two-year intensive learning about how you write a novel, how do you analyze other people's novels, how do you figure out how to do a beginning and an ending? You know, what does what is a scene comprised of? So there are all of these different learnings that I had in that two year that kind of fast tracked me to writing a draft of a novel and finishing it. And you're right. I think that everything I have done up to this point, whether it was writing advertising, whether it was, you know, listening to clients and really hearing what they wanted me to do to create. And then also just being careful of deadlines, learning how to, you know, manage my own time, manage my own life, in addition to all these other things I was doing. Those all come into play when you start writing a book. Nobody can just sort of write a book without having uh, a lot of other skills that you need as well, right? You, you, the time management, the ability to look at your own work in an objective fashion and say, have I done what I really started out to do? Is this, is this right? Is this what I need to be communicating? Have I communicated what I want? Is this what I believe in? 
why am I the best person to write this particular book? Why, why now? Why am I writing this particular book now? These are questions that you have to ask yourself as you keep writing. I think that it all comes together. Another thing, Lovelace, I think is that the older you get and the more experiences you've accumulated, you have the ability as you get older to have been through many of the similar experiences so that you go, ah, this is what I've learned from that type of experience. This is what I've learned from love. This is what I've learned from grief. This is what I've learned from persistence. You're able to then imbue your characters with a lot of that kind of experience or life or loss or, you know, romance or whatever it is that you're going for. You can actually write about it with much more authenticity because you have been through those experiences. I don't think I could have written The Henna Artist when I was 20 or 30 or 40. I had to wait until I had enough life experiences to be able to have my characters go through those same type of experiences. I totally agree. And, you know, it does make for bringing your wisdom into what you're writing, too. Make sure to tune in next week for part two of the episode with New York Times bestselling author Alka Joshi. We'll talk about the Netflix series in the works for the henna artist and book two in the trilogy, The Secret Keeper of Jaipur. And we'll discuss the third novel that Alka will publish in 2023. Thanks to Glasgow resident Jonathan Chapman, classically trained musician, artist, website designer, and a really great guy who introduced me to Edinburgh-based Red Note Ensemble and their album, Reels to Rollers, whose music you're listening to with renowned tabla player Kuljit Bamra. For more information, see the show notes at bollywoodandbooks.com, where East truly meets West.